The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you have a copy of God's Word this morning, would you join me in Philippians chapter 4? As we look through verse from verses 10 through 13 this morning. In the 1830s, Charles Dickens published his second novel entitled Oliver Twist. There have been a number of film adaptations to this work. There's one particular scene that is... um, the most famous from the, the movies, anyway, that sort of um, sets the, the stage for, for the entire story. Here's the way Dickens wrote it in chapter 2. The evening arrived. The, boy took their, the boys took their places. The master in his cook's uniform stationed himself at the copper His pauper assistants ranged themselves behind him. The gruel was served out. And a long grace was said over the short commons. The gruel disappeared. The boys whispered each other and winked at Oliver while his next neighbors nudged him. Child as he was, he was Desperate with hunger and reckless with misery. He rose from the table and advancing to the master, basin and spoon in hand, said, somewhat alarmed at his own bravery, please, sir, I want some more. The master was a fat, healthy man but he turned very pale. He gazed in stupefied astonishment on the small rebel for some seconds and then clung for support to the copper. The assistants were paralyzed with wonder, the boys with fear. What? said the master at length in a faint voice. Please, sir, said Oliver. I want some more. The master aimed a blow at Oliver's head with the ladle pinioned him in his arm, and shrieked aloud for the beetle. The novel Oliver Twist recounts the story of an orphan boy in an orphanage. And it was written to highlight the lives of criminals and the mistreatment of orphans in London. And it's sort of summed up in this picture of a young orphan boy eating gruel in hunger and desperation, asking this master who wants for nothing, please, sir, can I have some more? Well, I wasn't alive in the 1830s. Some of you maybe were. 
And Dickens certainly intended it to sort of highlight the culture that was around them there in London. And though we are all far, far from poverty or hunger, I do think that these words by Oliver Twist, please, sir, I want some more, shine a light into the heart of our culture. We live in a culture that while we are filled with so much, the regular battle cry of the uncontent American is, please, sir, I want some more. More of what, you may ask? More of whatever it is that we think will bring us happiness. More of whatever it is that we think would bring us satisfaction. More of whatever it is that we think might bring us more of a sense of contentedness. But what if I told you that contentedness and satisfaction isn't found in the quantity of your possessions, whatever they may be, but it's found in a person and that anyone can experience a deep, satisfying level of contentedness, no matter the circumstance. But in order to do it, you have to learn a secret. This is Paul's message here in these verses. As I worked through them, I was struck by the irony that we live in and experience and see when it comes to these verses. Because there's a verse here that's probably one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. One of the most used, most claimed verses in all of the Bible. And Paul penned these as the secret to to being content in want. And yet it's used more often than not in our society as the battle cry for uncontented ambition. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What we see this morning is the secret of finding contentment through gratitude and grace. Finding contentment through gratitude and grace. Would you read with me Philippians 4, starting in verse 10? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is talking about the virtue of contentment. Contentment is a highly prized but elusive virtue. Some would argue that it is the highest of all virtues. In Paul's day, there was a group known as the Stoics. The Stoics had an an incredible influence in Greek culture. It doesn't mean much for us when we talk about how the Stoics prized contentment as the highest of all virtue, but it certainly would have been understood by the church at Philippi. Stoicism was uh, a, a popular Greek philosophy, and it prized virtuous living through ethical and moral well-being. It elevated as best as possible keeping with nature. And it emphasized, above all other things, self-control and fortitude to overcome any of your destructive emotions. While Stoicism isn't necessarily a, 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 a popular philosophy in our days, the language still remains. When, when we encounter someone who is um, calm, who is not easily angered, not easily moved, uh, consistent in their emotions, what do we say of those people? And they are stoic. They are stoic. That's where this uh, language comes from. It's, it means to be inwardly content and not affected by outward circumstances. And for the stoic in Paul's day, the ability to do that, to have that ver- virtue within yourself, comes from within yourself. It's all about your own personal self-control and fortitude. But here, Paul is taking this idea of contentment, but he's showing that the source for the Stoic is all wrong. There is some good in their logic, but the source of contentment is all wrong. The source of contentment isn't found in your circumstances. The source of contentment isn't found inside of yourself. But the source of contentment, real contentment, regardless of the circumstances, is found in Jesus Christ. Contentment is found in both gratitude and grace. The first thing we see in these verses is that Paul is filled with gratitude. Look with me at verse 10. I rejoiced, Paul said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now there's some history in these verses that 
Paul certainly has experienced and the church at Philippi had experienced. It had been 10 years now since uh, Paul was with the church there in Philippi. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Paul had come to Philippi. He had planted a church there. He had spent time there developing um, disciples, raising up elders. The church had been planted and now... Through the leading of the Holy Spirit, Paul has left Philippi with the desire to go to Rome. As he leaves the church there at Philippi, the church supports him in his mission. They, they support him financially in what he is going to do. Uh, we'll see in, in next week uh, that th that wasn't the only time that they had supported him financially. But they had supported him to help meet his needs. So much so, this is what Paul says of them in his second letter to the church at, at Corinth. Starting in, in chapter 8, starting in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The churches of Macedonia would include the church at Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. In other words, though they did not have much, they gave all they could. They were generous to me. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were eager to do it, Paul says. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he has had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. That these churches in Macedonia, Philippi being the main one, though they were under great affliction, though they were in extreme poverty and deep want, overflowed with generosity towards the Apostle Paul. Now, ten years later, Paul finds himself in uh, Rome under Roman house arrest. He's chained there to a guard. And in Rome, if you're in prison or in house arrest at Rome, it isn't like it is here. You don't get, you know, three hots and a cot. You've got to take care of yourself. Uh, Rome doesn't take care of your needs. You have to provide for your needs on your own. So here's the question then. If you are under house arrest and you can't leave and you're chained to a guard, how then do you provide for yourself? How can Paul go out and make tents? He can't. He's utterly dependent on the churches caring for him and meeting his needs. And while he's there under house arrest, Epaphroditus shows up with an offering again from the church at Philippi. And Paul is grateful. 
So much so that he says he is rejoicing greatly. I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Paul rejoices at their continued generosity. But notice exactly what it is that Paul says here. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Paul's rejoicing wasn't necessarily in the gifts that Epaphroditus had brought to him in Rome from the church at Philippi. Though they were needed, and I'm sure they were greatly appreciated, his rejoicing wasn't in the gifts. His rejoicing was in the Lord. The cause of his joy was a gift from the church at Philippi. But the source of his joy was Christ Jesus. And he rejoiced in Christ over their generosity. Now, it's a little nuanced, but it seems in the text and from other scriptures that his rejoicing was in the Lord Jesus because their generosity towards him was an evidence to Paul that the church there was continuing in their spiritual maturity. That they were growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they were healthy and growing and spiritually Mature. Paul has been gone from them now 10 years. And he certainly still was, was concerned and, and hopeful for their continued growth and grace and their continued spiritual maturity. And he still loves them. And now as Epaphroditus shows up with this offering, he rejoices in the Lord because they're still generous. They're growing in their spiritual maturity. Generosity is a sign of spiritual maturity. And generosity pleases God. Paul Paul uses some interesting language here. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. That sounds sort of uh, unappreciative, right? I mean, does that sound that way to anybody else? I don't know, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. Now at length you finally revived your concern for me. Um, that word revived there is, a, is an interesting word. It, it's the same word of, as, as flowers blooming in the spring. Um, but Paul wants to make sure that they understand what he means. And so he, he, he says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul's saying, listen, I understand that you had been concerned for me. You had a deep concern for me, yet you haven't had an opportunity to show that concern. You just haven't had the opportunity to do it, Paul says. 
in Paul saying that, what Paul is, is showing is that he, he trusted in the sovereignty of God to arrange the circumstances that he found himself in to meet his needs. The church at Philippi didn't have the opportunity to do that, but that didn't mean that Paul's needs were going unmet. The Lord, God was still meeting his needs. God was still sovereign to arrange whatever circumstances he may have found himself in to meet his needs. Now, there was opportunity for the church at Philippi to do it, to meet his needs. They had wanted to do it all along, but now was the first opportunity. And so Paul rejoices in their generosity he rejoices in the Lord because their generosity, while it meets his needs, is a sign of their spiritual maturity and their growth in God. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That generosity is a heart issue. And as our hearts are molded and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ, as we grow in spiritual maturity, then our generosity should grow along with it. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. God is pleased with our generosity and we should not neglect doing good and sharing what we have. That's exactly what the church at Philippi is doing here with the Apostle Paul. Here's the question. The question is, do you see what you have in your circumstances as originating from God? Do you see everything that you have and the circumstances that you find yourselves in as gifts from God. Now, the things that we have, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, they may come to us through the conduit of other people. But do we see the Lord as the source of all that we have? That's where the Apostle Paul is. He's rejoicing in the Lord because he understands the sovereign Lord is the one that's ordering all of these circumstances. And he's rejoicing in the Lord that the Lord is still working in the heart of the church at Philippi to mold them and shape them and out of their heart produce a generosity. And so while he's grateful for the gifts that he's receiving from the Church in Philippi, he's rejoicing in the Lord because he sees these gifts as coming from the Lord Jesus because all that we have come from Him. His rejoicing is in the Lord. Let me ask you another question. Are you filled with that kind of gratitude? Are you filled with this kind of gratitude at what the Lord has provided? Or does your heart say, thank you, God. May I have some more? Paul goes on to say, making doubly sure that he's not sounding ungrateful. Verse 11, this clarification. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Now that's just crazy talk. Because of course, 
the Apostle Paul was in need. Who, who in Paul's circumstances would not consider themselves in need? He is certainly in need. By any definition, he would have been described as needy. Unless your worldview is such that you understand that all of life belongs to God and that He will meet your every need. If that's your worldview and you understand that all of life belongs to Him and that He cares for you and that He will supply you with your every need, then you can say with Paul, not that I'm in need, no matter the circumstances. Paul didn't see himself as needy because he had all that he needed and he knew that God would graciously give to him as he needed it. Paul had, he tells us, learned this. Paul had learned this. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, Paul says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul has learned that he's not in need because he's learned that in any situation he may find himself in, he is to be content. Now this word here, content, is only used in this place in the New Testament. It's used nowhere else. But it wasn't an uncommon word. It was a common word in the larger Greek writings of their time, specifically in the writings of the Stoics. The Greeks would have known this word to mean an inner self-control or fortitude. A self-sufficiency that rises above your emotions. That was what they would have understood this word to mean. But this isn't the source that Paul is talking about here. What, what Paul is doing is he's taking a, a cultural philosophy and he's using it to show that it's not necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily to be uh, discarded, but it's to be redeemed and better understood. That the real source of contentment doesn't come from within yourself. The real source of contentment comes from a secret that has to be learned. And he says, I've learned it. I've learned the secret. But no matter what the circumstances are, I am to be content. I, I like this, this language of I am to be content. Because this shows that this is a, a decision that you've got to make. And it's a decision that you've got to make before you need to make it. No matter what, I'm going to be content. Y'all know what I mean when I say it's a decision you've got to make before... You make it. We're, we're, run, we're, we're about to run into that with our family. He, he, just to give you an example, Eli's signed up for flag football. He's super excited. And it looks like practices are going to be on Wednesday nights. <laughs> like that's a decision that's got to be made before we have to make it. That's a decision we made a long time ago. We don't, we don't practice on Wednesday nights. We go to church on Wednesday nights. 
If I got to make that decision in the moment, it's hard because what is Eli? He really wants to play flag football. But you make that decision before you have to make that decision. This is Paul. I have learned to be content in whatever situation I find myself in. But I've made the decision before I have to make the decision to be content. I've learned it, Paul says. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. He has learned... Paul has learned how to be humbled. Notice the language here. I I know how to be brought low, right? That's not Paul humbling himself. That's his circumstances humbling him. That's being humbled. He understands how to be, because of, of external circumstances, how he is made to be low. And I know how to abound. How to have excess. In in any, in every circumstance, Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, of abundance and need. Of facing it, of looking it square in the eye and saying, okay, it's here. I'm not going to pretend like it's not here. I'm not going to act like it's not real. I'm not going to act like it's not happening. I'm going to face it head on. I'm going to face it. Both hunger and plenty. Abundance and need. Paul had experienced it all. Paul knew firsthand of the triumphs of life. He had experienced them. And he knew firsthand the lowest of lows. Paul had walked through any and all circumstances. You know, Paul had different companions on his missionary journeys, but there was one constant companion, and that was trouble. (laughs) Trouble was his constant companion. He recounts those. How many times he'd been stoned, how many times he'd been flogged, how he'd been hungry, how he'd been shipwrecked, how he'd been adrift. His constant companion on his missionary journeys was troubles. He knew the lowest of lows. He knew what it meant to be at the point of death. But he also knew the highest of highs, the joys that come with a life lived solely for Christ. He says, I've learned the secret No matter the circumstances, I can look it in the face and be content. I've learned the secret. What was the secret that Paul had learned? Verse 13, that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That no matter the struggles Paul may find himself in, be it physical, emotional, spiritual, no matter the struggles, Paul had an invisible means of support. That Christ Jesus was with him, strengthening him, 
And Paul knew that because of that, he could do all things. Now, this all things here isn't necessarily the all things that our culture wants to say all things mean. Right? Because what the culture wants to tell us is, you know, I have a desire to be a great football player. And so if I write under my eyes Philippians 4.13, then the Lord will strengthen me to be a great football player because I want to be a great football player. That's not the all things. For Paul, the all things in his life is a singular thing that manifests itself in a whole host of different things. But the all things is whatever it is that the Lord has ordained for him to do. That's the all things. I can do anything and everything that God has called me to do. That's Paul's point here. Whether that includes hunger or plenty whether that includes suffering or joy, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And as I do it, I can look it in the face and find contentment. No task that God had planned for the Apostle Paul was beyond the Apostle Paul's ability because of the strengthening power of Christ in him. Church, that same thing is true for you. The same thing is true for me. There is not a single task that the Lord will call you to that He will not strengthen you for. And because Paul knew that there was a constant source of supply, he was content. There were many times in his ministry where Paul had come to the end of his own strength. Can you get closer to the end of your own strength than being at the verge of death? Yet in those moments, there was a supernatural undergirding through the spiritual strength that came from Christ Jesus. This verse isn't about being a better athlete. This verse is about learning to be content no matter your circumstances. In want, Jesus strengthens me. In abundance... Jesus strengthens me. There's a, there's a lot written about um, this dichotomy that the Apostle Paul puts here of want and abundance and how in both there is a need for contentment. And regularly, it is in abundance that we are the least content. That we want more and we want more and we want more and we want more. We think if we had more, then we'll be content. But the reality is... If you find your contentment in the more, you'll never be content. The secret is in Christ Jesus. Contentment is rooted in an unchanging God, not in our constantly changing selves. The reality in all of our lives is both abundance and want will pass. But Christ remains. The secret that Paul has learned is to see and to understand that when our needs are met, be it a little or a lot, 
it is the grace of God. And that's the way Paul sees all of life as a grace of God. Paul is, has learned contentment through gratitude and grace. I want to take you back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 again, where the Apostle Paul talks about receiving gifts from the church at Philippi and the language that he uses for the gifts. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this was not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. The Apostle Paul understood all that he had in life as being the grace of God. See, I, I think we might have sort of walking into some, some bad thinking where we say that the grace of God is God forgiving us of our sins and we sort of leave it there. Now that is the grace of God, but the grace of God is more than that. The grace of God goes beyond that. The grace of God is everything that God does and gives us. It's His grace. Do you know why? Because we don't deserve a single thing. So everything we have, everything we've been given is the grace of God. Now you might say, well, hold on, Jason. I'm not like the Apostle Paul where I'm just receiving gifts. I'm not given these things. I've earned these things. Right? I've worked and I've earned these things. No. They're, they're given to you. They're a grace of God. You might have earned them from your employer. But your ability to work was given to you by God. So we have to come to the place where we understand all that we have in life, be it in severe want or severe abundance, is a grace of God. It's the grace of God in our life. This is Paul's outlook in life. God will supply my every need through his abundance of grace. And whatever means he chooses to meet those needs... I will be filled with gratitude. 
even though I'm hungry or even though I'm full, I rejoice in the Lord because of his grace shown to me. What's the strength that's given to him? It's the, the grace of God. You see, we learn contentment in life when we see all of life as a grace, as a gift of God. Our wants, our needs, gifts from God. That leads us to a total dependence on Him. Our abundance is a gift from Him. Our abundance is a gift from Him. And what should our abundance lead us to? Generosity. In both our wants and our abundance, we grow in spiritual maturity. As we find the source of our contentment, the secret of our contentment in this reality that no matter the circumstances, that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength according to His grace. That He strengthens us to endure according to His grace. That He strengthens us to stand firm according to His grace. That He strengthens us to accomplish the task that He set before us according to His grace. That He strengthened us to be generous to those around us in need. That will be next week according to His grace. The question for us is, do we know His grace? Do you know His grace? Do you know His saving grace? that saves you from your sins? Or do you still think that you deserve and have earned a right standing before Him? You cannot. You cannot. He is holy. You are sinful. You cannot. You are dependent on His grace for salvation. Do you know His saving grace? And once you know His saving grace, do you know His common grace, His everyday grace that He pours out on us as He meets our every need? Do you see all of your life as coming from Him and being a grace from Him so that you rejoice in the Lord at what you have, knowing that it didn't come from the, solely from the toil of your own hands, it didn't come solely from the gifts of others, but it comes from the very throne of a sovereign God who meets your every need no matter if you find yourself in want or no matter if you find yourself in abundance, God is faithful to supply your every need to strengthen you with supernatural strength to accomplish the task that He set before you. That is the secret to contentment. Or, or are we like the orphan child? Saying, thank you, sir. Can I have some more? Father, would you help us be people of gratitude, knowing that there is grace upon grace upon grace that flows from you. Saving grace that forgives us of our sins. Common grace that meets our every need. How grateful we are that we have a 
Savior that is with us in the trials and the storms, that strengthens us, that supplies us with our every need. So would we learn the secret to contentment? That God will supply all that we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.